So what I want to talk about tonight is the first noble truth. Because um, it actually makes me really happy. I get quite inspired thinking about the first noble truth. And uh, it's, of course, it's both obvious and also quite profound and we misunderstand it. So, which is, is really why we suffer. So, um, it's been mentioned and the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, and how dukkha is, is often, usually translated into English as suffering. And um, I think that's a, a limited and not so helpful translation. Because as pointed out, when we, th- when we hear the word suffering in English, the first noble truth, suffering. And then, of course, it goes to the glib, you know, life is suffering, which, of course, is not what the Buddha was teaching. Um, but when we hear suffering, it's pretty easy for the mind to slide into some aversion along with that, right? It just kind of comes together. And um, I'm pretty sure the Buddha didn't enunciate and teach the first noble truth to elicit aversion in our minds at all, but exactly the opposite. So when in each of the four truths, there's an action to be performed with it. The first noble truth of dukkha is to be understood, to be understood. Why? Because the understanding, not just intellectual, but really on a cellular level, which is, you know, our whole life of practice, we keep going deeper and deeper with it, that understanding frees us, frees us from confusion, from suffering, from, um, you know, reactions to life that are based on inaccurate recognition of reality. So just to start with the word dukkha, um, I really like the way Bhikkhu Analayo, who's quite a scholar, um, describes or discusses the uh, translation of that word. I'll just shorten it very briefly, but kind of saying it's one way he breaks down the word in Pali is to de and ka as as two parts of um, de meaning difficulty and ka meaning actually the hole, the axle hole in the wheel of an ox cart. You might wonder where we're going with this, but Talking about uh, if you've uh, an ox cart, these old-fashioned wooden ox carts have these big wooden wheels with a hole in the middle, you know, and the axle, which is that pole that runs between the wheels, fits. And it doesn't really fit in a very smooth, frictionless way. It rubs. There's disharmony. There's friction. It's just that little rub. It's never really smooth and comfortable. If you've ever ridden in an ox cart without uh, padding, trust me, this is a very accurate description of dukkha. It just, you know, rubs. It just doesn't quite fit. Another way he describes it is a kind of discomfort, uneasiness not standing in an easy way. Or as Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it, as the basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives. This isn't just the suffering of unpleasant experience, of course that's included. 
is much broader and actually more liberating to understand than that. So it's this, it's this, this sense of unreliability, right? The sense of just that friction, even when everything's all together. As Ruth Dennison, this wonderful uh, German-American teacher, used to say, it's just the little leak in the canoe. There's always just some little something. And even if there's not something, our minds make something when we don't see. Like, this is how bad, this is how sick the mind is. I walked in here, I looked at these lovely flowers, they're lovely, and I thought, but the ones, the last ones, I liked them better. (laughs) I missed those last flowers. They had that purple. Oh my God, you know. How do we get through life? How do we get through life? But this is, you know, when we're not watching. This is what the mind does. And then we take it up when we make it, it really is a problem. So that's a little example, but. So, dukkha. Let me read you two two definitions from the Buddha. The first one, the first noble truth, because they call, talk about three different aspects of dukkha. Read this one first. This is Sariputta, who is the Buddha's chief disciple, was uh, answering a question to someone who asked about dukkha. And he said, there are three types of dukkha. First is the stress, the discontent due to pain, due to difficult experience, called Obviously enough, dukkha dukkha. The neck is, you think it's funny, huh? You don't think it's so funny when you come into the interviews. (laughs) Next is, uh, (laughs) oh, what the heck you guys are laughing at? Another one is uh, the dukkha due to change, that what is beautiful and pleasant changes, the constant fluctuation, viparinama dukkha. And the other is the dukkha, a sankhara dukkha, the dukkha of all conditioned formations, of all compound fabrications that they're never really going to be satisfying. So talk a little bit about the first two particularly. So... The first, the obvious one, dukkha dukkha, is what we usually think of when we think of the first noble truth. It's the way the Buddha described it, the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness, death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering, not to get what one wants, is suffering. Okay, all of that, and I'm using suffering, that would, I would call all of that suffering, right? We're aware that we don't like any of those things. But what's the Buddha talking about when he describes, when he came out of everything that he understood and decided this is what how I want to package what I understood to teach to free your heart and mind. And he starts by saying, you know, all these painful things are suffering. It's like, duh, you know, how, how is that going to free us? But what's so fascinating, even just on this level of the very first aspect of dukkha, the dukkha dukkha, is we don't really 
understand or believe that this is just how life is. He's simply describing reality the way it is. So we go, oh yeah, right, we all suffer. But when it happens, when it happens, how does our heart and mind react? You know, and this is where it comes to be so freeing. The suffering, yeah, this stuff happens, that's dukkha dukkha. But the first noble truth that's not understood, that contributes to the suffering that the Buddhist teachings can free us from, is, as we've said, it's from the reactions in our hearts and minds, the fire of longing, the fire of aversion that comes from misunderstanding life as it is, from misperceiving life as it is. And so we keep on moment after moment, again, we'll see and then we'll forget. We resist reality as it's arising in the moment. So much of our experience when you're consciously suffering is we're in contention with what's happening now. Again and again, we're either pushing away or somewhere looking for that stable state that's going to be reliable. And the Buddha is saying in terms of all the aspects of dukkha that there is nothing that's reliable. All the Dukkha as one of the characteristics of existence along with impermanence, anicca, and uh, no, no separate self, anatta, Buddha describes over and over, are an aspect of all conditioned phenomena. All, not just some, all conditioned phenomena. So we think all aspects of experience are included in the first noble truth of Dukkha. That's not just the obvious difficult ones. And so there's the fire of aversion and the fire of longing. We keep thinking something here is going to be reliable, secure. We don't recognize accurately. And because we don't tend to really deeply cellularly get it, this is how life is, when something, even the obvious difficult comes, aging, illness, failing at something, losing one's job, something difficult happens. So often there's this sense of, I did something wrong. How come this is happening to me? What happened outside is like blame, surprise, or shame, as if this is a mistake. And if we could get it right, this kind of mistake is going to stop happening. Did you come here to stop those kinds of mistakes? There's a a spiritual teacher in California, not Buddhist, but probably many of you have heard of her, Byron Katie, and she has a great line, when you fight with reality, you lose. (laughs) And so this um, aspect of not recognizing the simple way that things are, all the birth, aging, death, sickness, gain and loss, this happens to everybody at some point over and over, not recognizing it, the way we respond out of not recognizing is really moha, delusion. And the suffering from these tormented reaction is really from the base root of delusion, which shows up, I wanna mention a couple of ways. Shows up through denial, just denying what's actually occurring in front of our face. Uh, Inattention, we just don't notice. And then misperception, act, 
actively perceiving something in a way that's inaccurate. So these forms of delusion uh, at different times are supporting, are not understanding, are not living um, in harmony with this truth of how things are, the noble truth of dukkha. Okay, let me tell a story, a very simple, simple story. Not some big suffering thing, but this sense of how even when things seem to be going fine, that little leak in the canoe is running through and and we don't tend to notice. I think I mentioned, not that you would remember, why should you remember, but something about how when I was growing up, when in my early 20s, I, I started to realize I had really bought the story that, you know, things just get better and better. You grow up and you get your life, you know, all of that. But I really was buying it. And I didn't have any obvious horrible thing going on. But I wasn't happy. And I think, what's the matter with me? You know, I have nothing to complain about. And even when we, we do have stuff to complain about, many people here come and say, well, this is going on and it's really difficult, but other people in the world have it so much worse, so I shouldn't even complain. It's like we, we shut it aside, we don't want to look. So when I first heard this teaching, I was like, oh, huge breath out. I'm not insane. Now, it's not like I'm some kind of weird, negative person who can't be happy. It's just kind of, it's not seeing the whole picture, which steady mindfulness lets us see. So I'll tell you this story, simple one like that. Uh, Some years ago, I was on staff here in the winter. It was a winter. I'd been here in very cold, gray, snowy. And and so uh, another friend who was on staff, uh, a guy, we decided we wanted to go to the sauna which is nowhere near here. Don't even get your hopes up. (laughs) Not that you need one today, but it's like a half hour, half hour drive away. You know, so in the cold, in the winter, and I see so great, we're going to go to the sauna. So we get together. So I'm going to describe it as it really happened, but not as we saw it. Because what I said, we went to the sauna, we came out, we said, wow, that was great. And then we talked about, I'm going to describe it, what we just really happened. So we decide to go to the sauna, we have to bundle up, we get in the car, and it's really cold for like the first 10 minutes till the heat comes on, so we're cold and bundled and driving in this crummy weather in the ice. We get to this place where the sauna is. It's not the nicest, you know, spa in the world. And then we have to separate, so I I don't know what his was like, but the women's locker room was was kind of grody, you know, kind of grungy and cold. I always didn't like to be barefoot in there. So it was, you know, kind of cold and damp. Take the shower, it's unpleasant. Get in the sauna. Great. It's fantastic. Like, how long can you sit in the sauna that is really nice? You have five minutes, maybe, you know. Then... You start to sweat and you get a headache and it's too hot. You go, no, but I came all this way. So you stay a little longer. Then finally you have to get out and take a cold shower. I hate cold showers. Take a cold shower. Oh God, then you can go back in again. But it's never quite as good as it was the first time. You can't stay quite the same amount of time, but a little bit. You do that for a while and finally, okay, that's over. Come out, the grody, you know, locker room. You're all cold again. By the time you get dressed, you go out. I met my friend who said, wow, that was great. And that's what life is like. (laughs) It is. 
It's a constant fluctuation, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So now you would be saying, why would I want to look that carefully? You know, <laughs> I, w- I want to pretend everything's great. Well, good luck to you. If it worked, none of you would be here. Believe me. <laughs> doesn't work because that's not how it is. It's not how it is. My mother, who's, she was really a lovely woman, very resolutely positive, um, you could say. And one time she visited here, well, again, when I was on staff, you know, it says Meta over the top. Now, I don't know where she picked this up, because she respected what we, we all do here, but she didn't really know anything about it. wasn't that interesting. She said, oh, Meta, that's kind of the opposite of Dukkha, isn't it? I said, wow, <laughs> where'd you learn that? And then I was describing Dukkha, she goes, oh, but I don't have any Dukkha. I don't suffer, you know? <laughs> and it's, I, not that it's true, but you're seeing here part of what makes retreat so difficult you're seeing it, all of you, the opening into the unpleasant. Even little, like nudgy unpleasant, can be really hard, can't it? Never mind the big stuff. Um, and, and depending on our particular habits, some of us have spent a lot of time perfecting how my mother was of, no, I don't suffer. Going to the sauna, it's all great, you know? I don't want to look at it because if we see the unpleasant, we feel we thrown over. But it, that's denial. It's inattention but also denial, just not seeing what's happening. Uh, I read a, a, a book about, it was um, uh, Russia in the 1990s. The man who wrote this book was going and interviewing people who had been in the gulag, you know, under Stalin, who had survived it. And after the Soviet Union broke up in the 1990s, he could find people who, who would actually talk about it, you know, wouldn't really talked about it all before. So you're just interviewing different people during that time. And um, the book was really about that, but to me the book seemed to be about the, the power of denial. He quoted George Orwell in uh, talking about the power, the courage of perception, the power of facing unpleasant facts. And so um, Hoxheil, the, the writer of the book, this is just one thing he said, he noticed that those during the time, the 30s, the 40s, under Stalin, when so many people were just arbitrarily arrested, I mean, we're talking 20 million people, not one or two people here or there. Those who tried to avoid arrest by lying low, lying low means hiding, moving from place to place, had a very good chance of success. However, people rarely tried to do that. Despite mass arrests, Almost everybody believed it can't happen to me. Isn't that like how we feel about death? Can't happen to me. So so people, they would deny the bad news because it implies worse news. If I'm about to be arrested, it would mean the whole system has gone mad, which was true. But that's too much to let in. It can't be true. So you just deny the whole thing and don't take appropriate action. The power of denial is very strong. And even though, you know, in some way we feel like this is our protection from the difficult, from the painful. It's what keeps us, or brings us into a sense of alienation, of isolation, of disconnect. The sense of, as if I can somehow hold myself separate from this unwanted experience, from this painful, unpleasant experience. 
Do you ever notice that in your mind? Probably not so clear like that. Something's happening, do everything we can to fix it because it shouldn't be here. And somehow I can hold myself separate from this. And so when there's still in us this, this habit, it's so deep of holding ourselves separate from unpleasant. And we've talked about this, the whole, the whole speaking about this uh, aspect of mind of Vedana, you know, the sense of recognizing the unpleasant and how easily that moves into pushing away, recognizing or not recognizing when the mind feels something is pleasant, how easily that moves into wanting. Neutral, how easily we miss that. That's not a given that has to happen, but it's such... Um, a deeply practiced habit of our mind. It's like in this mind that doesn't really exist and it has no base, it's like there's a deep rut, okay? I don't know where the rut is, but there is a deep rut that the mind just goes into. Unpleasant, wrong, bad. Is it not just kind of, oh, I don't like the unpleasant, let me hold myself separate. It's like, this shouldn't be happening. And you see that even in little things in retreat, oh, the breath is a little tight all the stuff that can get going in your mind. What's wrong, how to fix it, what is it? the breath, the no, and the teachings, and because it's, it's tight, it's a little unpleasant. That's all that's happening. It shouldn't be this way. It's so deep. And, and also in life, you know, when something difficult happens, when often I've seen when someone is, is, is ill or develops maybe not like a flu or something, but some kind of chronic disease, some really difficult thing, that often people feel a sense, and I've experienced this myself, a kind of an alienation, of isolation. Almost, it can be almost like shame. What did I do wrong, you know, that this is happening to me? Or when something difficult happens in life, or we're separated from what we love, it's either, ah, you don't want people to know, you know, you feel ashamed, or the mind throws the aversion out and looks for people or situations to blame. Both of which are aversion, which doesn't see clearly. Rather than this is what's happening and we're all together in at different times experiencing really difficult, painful stuff. This is life. It's not like some weird mistake. I remember years ago, I developed a kind of a chronic um, autoimmune condition. And uh, so I was doing everything you do to, to work with it. But at some point I noticed, and I've talked to a lot of other people who've been like kind of spiritual thing, practitioners, where there can be this kind of not quite into consciousness idea that if I was really a good practitioner, and my mind really wasn't all knotted up with delusion, I wouldn't be sick, right? That if you could really practice correctly, your body wouldn't somaticize stuff and you wouldn't get sick. I know that sounds crazy, but I know I'm not the only one who feels that. And at one point it occurred to me, hmm, Ramana Maharshi, he died of cancer. Okay. Do I, you know, and I just started going through, you know, all these, everybody dies of something, you know, <laughs> they get sick, they die. It's got nothing to do with if you really have it together, you're not going to get sick. The body's not going to get old. I mean, follow it to its logical conclusion. It's nuts. We laugh. But look at what the mind is doing and how 
in this world of absolutes, we get these perfectionist ideals. It's just supposed to be better and better and good. And if something goes wrong, it's because you somehow blew it or someone else did. Instead of, and right away we're in contention with reality. This is denial. Freedom, freedom from fear. Liberation of mind is not about getting rid of unpleasant experience. It has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with it. Yet our habit is so strong. There's um, something the Buddha said in his sutta where he talks about the two darts that always moves me actually quite a lot about how these habits get developed. So I know many of you know the sutta with the two darts where he talks about when the difference between an awakened person and an unawakened one, that when an unawakened person is as if hit by an arrow, say a physical pain, they get upset, they lament, they beat their breasts, they scream and yell. It's like they shoot a second arrow at themselves, right? That's the two arrows. And an awakened person, they get shot by an arrow and nothing. They don't shoot the second arrow. But following that, he says, and this is, I I always, I don't know, I just really find this moving. He's describing, again, in in a normal person, in one who has experiencing a painful feeling, he resists it and resents it, right? So the underlying tendency of resistance against painful feeling comes to be in the mind comes to kind of underlie, be a habit of mind. You get that, that we resist the unpleasant, the painful, and so the tendency to resistance of painful comes to be a habit that underlies the mind. And under the impact of that painful feeling, she then proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. Why? Because, and this is the line that just really gets me, an untaught worldling, a normal unawakened person, does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. So then that becomes a tendency to lust for pleasant feelings, underlies the mind, along with the tendency to resist unpleasant feelings and a tendency to not know what the heck's going on with neutral. Um, And a little different from how he said it. (laughs) But he says, so... One does not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings or the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. And so that really, I don't know, it kind of is so poignant to me that people in the world without a path, experiencing something unpleasant, the only escape they know is to go lust after something pleasant. That's samsara, right, in a nutshell. If that's so, if that's how we grew up, if that's what we've learned, if that's what we've unconsciously, you know, taken in, and the Buddha's talking about a deep habit, no wonder we struggle so much, even when we have the information. Okay, open to the unpleasant, that's the path of freedom. We go, okay, yeah, okay, maybe. But when it comes, it's, it's not like we can just do that so often. Because the habit is so strong. Go for the pleasant. That's the only escape for those who don't know. But as he's saying, he says, awakened people do know of the escape other than just lusting after the pleasant. 
And the escape begins with understanding this first noble truth. Because when we understand, it's not about pleasant, getting more unpleasant, getting rid of unpleasant. It's not about thinking that the, the presence of difficult in our life is the cause of our real deep suffering, our unhappiness. That there's no way to be free and happy with these difficult conditions. Just isn't true. But we can't just take that on board. Colloquialisms again. We can't just say, oh yeah, that's a good idea and now I'm going to do it. We have to keep looking, keep looking. See for ourselves if that's really true. So this is what retreats are for in a way. That's why, in a perverted way, sometimes we teach us when you come in and, not when you're suffering big time, but little, okay? Little sufferings, even if it's big time to you, but it's, it's a little thing, not really a life-changing thing. And we're like, not, not, we're not like masochistically happy you're suffering. But it's like when Winnie says, we'll bring you back to look at what's going on here, because this is the path to freedom. If we just said, okay, let's fix all the conditions so God forbid you don't have to be together with this unpleasant experience in your mind, that's not doing you any favors. When I first started teaching, you know, because first we have our own neurosis. Yes, hard to believe, I know. But um, a big one is wanting to be liked. And it took me a while to really learn when people come in and they're talking, my job isn't to take away your suffering, which I couldn't do anyway. I mean, if I could wave a wand and it was really gone, that would be one thing. But that's to support, as Winnie said, the opening into the investigation of what really is the suffering here. To support that with wisdom, because that is the way into freedom from suffering, not by avoiding it all. So when you start noticing thoughts like, why is this happening to me? Why now? What did I do wrong? How can I get that other one back? I've blown it. It's all over. I'm out of here. (laughs) That one comes a lot. I'm going home right now. This is hopeless. How could this happen? Whose fault is it? I don't want anyone to know I'm really ashamed of this. All this stuff. It's all the ways that we're, we're taking it as personal. And you know how alienating, how isolating, how this sense of separation from others and from life when we meet the, the difficult with this, this way of relating. But what's so touching about dukkha, first noble truth, all conditioned phenomena, is we all share. This is the way it is for all of us. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to fail sometimes. We're all going to have choppy breath once in a while, you know, pain and and whatever, our own particular story. And so as I I go on, I'll say that that really the opening in to dukkha is more and more the opening into compassion. It's the movement from alienation and separation and shame into the opening into all of life as it is. And this opening out of aversion and fear and greed is the opening that that purifies the heart and mind that actually allows the recognition of 
things as they are, the recognition of liberation, of nibbana. So when, when we are, even in a little thing, big thing, doesn't matter, able in a moment just to surrender into the difficult, just as it is to open our mind and hearts, to stop resisting, I think you'll find that it's just what I said, the sense of it being uh, unwelcome, unbearable, really changes. It really changes. And when you're not in contention with this moment of reality, we really can experience the ease and peace of mind and heart. That is, some say, is the natural ease and peace. And even very intense suffering states, it works in the same way. Just a little example. A few years ago, uh, uh, my sister died suddenly. And it was a very intense time in the way. It was, just, it was all very intense. And I was, was her main person and everything. So um, I experienced quite some grief, which is normal, right? So it was very interesting. At the time it happened, I had come off of a, uh, I'd been come off of a period of intensive retreat for a couple months earlier that year, and I just felt uh, like I'd been quite, kind of awake in my mind, like just really not just a quant, just looking at stuff, not resisting stuff so much. It was an interesting time, and then this kind of happened out of the blue, and so. I noticed because with that kind of grief, there was no way my mind could go to say, this shouldn't have happened. I mean, it happened. You can't say it didn't happen or it should, it, this is what happened, it's so clear. There was no way I could get into any kind of self-judgment or blame for feeling grief. You know, for those of us who have self-judging as a tendency, we're pretty good at finding all kinds of squirrely ways to bring it up, you know, when it doesn't make any sense. But I couldn't then. It was just, of course there's grief, of course. Even though it was so strong, it surprised me. And what was so interesting, because over some months, you know, it would come, it come, nothing stays all the time. And it would be very intense, and there was just no resistance in my mind about it. I'd just really be with it, really intense. And it would really go. It wouldn't last too long, it would go. It would just come at all odd moments of the day and night. And I had to keep, I mean, I had a very full schedule the rest of the year. I had to keep on doing what I was doing. And sometimes it was harder and I couldn't always um, do extra things that I would have liked. But again, it's like, okay, this is just how it is. There was so not resistance that it was amazing to me. And at those times that the grief would be coming really strong, and grief is grief. It's not like grief suddenly feels like something else. It's grief. It's heavy, you cry, all of that stuff. But then without the resistance, I couldn't, I, even at the time I said, I can't actually call this suffering. It's just what it is. It's just what it is. Not good, not bad, just what it was really interesting. I learned so much from that. And I noticed over some time, like months, that sometime after months, that some kind of like resistance, some kind of impatience started to come in my mind. And it would come up and it'd be like, just a little, okay, you know, let's move on here. Or it's time, or you shouldn't be feeling this anymore, or whatever stupid story the mind made up. But there'd be a little bit of resistance, and it was a completely different experience. 
Then it kind of became more alienating, more separating, more kind of dragging me down, more isolating, very interesting. But at the time when it's just what it was, no resistance, no contention, then opening to that's what's happening, one is also open to all aspects of life. Remember during the peak of that time, some friends, I was in Germany, really dear friends, took me to this incredible um, garden show. They have every two years, you Germans, you know, every two years it moves around in different places. It was in Koblenz that year, I forget the name of it. Like, so the acres and acres and acres of all these flowers, I mean, it's amazing. So I was, you know, in this grief, we go, okay. But it was so beautiful that it brought such a happiness to my mind. And I remember thinking, wow, I never, I mean, flowers are nice and all, but I never like, I know, I'm not a big gardener. Like I never totally got it about flowers are amazing. They bring so much happiness to the world, just looking at them. It was something about it. And so it's like you just kind of open to all of life when it's like that. And so explore that, explore that. Other aspect of um, the first noble truth, that of change. And this is where I really want to ask to look at where this is where we see that dukkha, the first noble truth of dukkha, is not just about unpleasant experience. The Buddha said, all feeling, all feeling, Vedana, is included within dukkha. And so even now, if we're thinking of dukkha as unpleasant, difficult, then it doesn't make sense, does it? But all feeling is included within dukkha. This was Sariputta's lion's roar of awakening, is something he saw when he was looking at Wow, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's all included within dukkha because it's unreliable. It's liable to change. There's nothing to hold on to. Like the Buddha said, separation from what is loved. It doesn't mean that we don't appreciate pleasant or that pleasant stops being pleasant. It just can't offer us anything more than that fleeting moment of pleasant experience. So not just buying this, but look, explore. The Buddha said that dukkha either ripens as confusion, ripens as bewilderment, or it ripens as search. So when you're in resistance, contention with experience, whether it's unpleasant or something beautiful has changed, and you feel that, you're fighting with reality, let the dukkha ripen as search. Ajahn Chah put it a different way, saying that there's two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So take your pick, (laughs) moment to moment. And the end of search just means it ripens as search. Get interested, look. It doesn't mean we start being afraid of pleasant or the beautiful. But the Buddha said, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. A lot of times people um, get into like the reverse, kind of the reverse of chasing after pleasant. This is a, uh, a major kind of Dharma practitioner uh, propensity 
to almost hate the pleasant, right? God forbid I should feel something pleasant because I might crave. And craving's bad. We know craving's suffering, so we're like pushing it away. But that doesn't work either. It's seeing what's really so, not trying. That's the same way of trying to manage the world. It doesn't work. And then we think pleasant's bad. It's not. Or people start thinking, well, that just everything just becomes kind of all the same, pleasant, unpleasant, (laughs) neutral. It's all dukkha. What's the point? And that's kind of a a way that we can uh, get a little bit lost, you know. In fact... um, some years ago. I actually think it's, it's, it's a way that we misunderstand the first noble truth. And we can actually fall into a kind of an aversion to life. And this is a little bit, aversion to the pleasant, aversion to life. It's all dukkha, so what's the point? And there's periods, and this will really cheer you up, there's, <laughs> there's phases in practice, in deep practice, where sometimes it's like, I, I call it having the, the dukkha lens on, where maybe we haven't really been, like, like my sauna experience, where you start seeing the steady awareness, not just noticing the unpleasant, not just noticing the pleasant, but the steady continuity of awareness. You start to see the constant changing, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There's nothing to hold. There's nothing to rely on for happiness, the unpleasant too is changing, but you can't hold to anything. So what's the point? So the ducal lens, I remember well one retreat I had, I'd walk into the room, my room, and I had a, a plant hanging. I'd walk in and I'd go, what's the point? It's just going to die. <laughs> you know, and you see, and, and, and really, <laughs> it wasn't funny at the time. It's like you're just kind of seeing that's true, but it's not complete, Right? I mean, it would be nice to water it and let it live for a while in the meantime. <laughs> or I remember now uh, seeing a, a, a couple on staff had just gotten together. This was a long time ago. And they're walking down the driveway, holding hands. And I'm going, yeah, well, good luck. You know. <laughs> I give them six months. How long has it gone? I, recently, I found out they're still together, just so you know. But who knows if they're happy. <laughs> but, this, but this kind of... <laughs> this kind of... Uh, Duke a lens that gets on is not... I thought I was really, cl- really kind of clever, you know, seeing in this way, kind of busting myself out of attachment. But it, it really isn't. It leads to... It, it's, it's unbalanced and it leads to a kind of a nihilism and it's feeding aversion, just to say. And it's not what the Buddha was talking about. I love it that he talks about in terms, back to in terms of the pleasant, that pleasant feeling's included within dukkha. But he's saying there is pleasant feeling. And we just need to understand the gratification in it, the danger in it, and the escape. But even though he talks so much about the dangers of sense pleasures, he never said they're not pleasant and that we can't appreciate. So there's one sutta where he's talking about his practice before he was the awakened Buddha, and he was really exploring what is the gratification in the world. And he said, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, that's the gratification. If there were no gratification in the world, beings would not become enamored in love with the world. But we do. There is gratification. He's not saying there isn't. But mostly, 
like the worldlings who only know to, to seek pleasant feeling when it's unpleasant, we stop there. We don't keep searching, you know. So that gratification, that's it, pleasant feeling. But he keeps on looking. What's the danger, you know? The danger is that the gratification is impermanent, subject to change, can't give us any satisfying, reliable happiness. So this is the danger. And the escape is the abandoning of the desire and the lust for the world. He's not saying we hate the world and it just becomes all one dull gray thing, but we abandon the lust for the world. Without craving, often we think of it as, ah, you know, we feel like something's missing, you know. Something is missing, but but the thing that's missing isn't actually the thing that's bringing us to feeling alive. It's so, again, kind of poignant to me that so often the craving, that wanting, that attachment is what we're so used to, that what we so connect with um, the pleasant with happiness, that when that's gone, at first we don't recognize that the peace and ease of non-contention, of really opening fully into this moment, is such a greater happiness than this kind of um, more raucous kind of happiness of attachment, of craving. But so I think this this kind of putting this uh, aversion lens on it's just something to, to bear in mind, to be aware of if that's going on for you. Because as I say, I thought it was so clever, but it's just aversion. And as the Buddha said, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will, aversion, and does not understand as it really is the escape from the arisen ill will, aversion, on that occasion, On that occasion, it's only moment to moment. One neither knows or sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. And so when you notice that you're sliding into kind of this ill will aversion lens, it doesn't mean avoid the unpleasant, but turn your awareness to that. And if it seems like you're just getting you realize you're getting kind of blinded by aversion. Maybe a really difficult emotional state or a complex emotional pattern keeps coming up, for example, here. And you can explore it, you can be with it, be open to it, say like the grief I was describing. But then it keeps coming or it's at night and your energy's low and you can feel like you're just getting sucked into a vortex of it. Do you ever feel like that? You can kind of know what's happening, but it's just like, shh. An ill will, aversion, or fear is just beyond overwhelming. And the more you try to be mindful, the stronger the ill will gets. Did that ever happen to anybody here? No? No. (laughs) So when you notice that, that's when we talk about skillful means. Refresh your awareness. It's not the same as running from the unpleasant, but that's when you really see it's not helpful to just keep feeding the aversion you can't see accurately. So at that point, deliberately shift your attention to something more neutral. It's not running away, it's refreshing the awareness, whether it's opening to hearing, feeling the breath, 
outside and doing some walking and just being with the walking, being with the sound of the wind, whatever it is. You're not abandoning awareness, but you're moving away from just spinning in the ill will. Because even with our best intentions, the habits of our mind to react to unpleasant with aversion is so strong. The denial, the resistance, the being in contention with reality is just such a strong pattern. But keep noticing, because the steadiness of awareness, this continuity, is what sets the conditions for liberating wisdom to arise. Because all you have to do is be steady with awareness and you'll see this constant fluctuation of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It just keeps changing. And at times the fact that there's nothing lasting in our experience to, to rely on for happiness can engender fear. But keep looking, fear's just another mental state too. It leads to this real freedom when we're not looking for happiness to what can never give it. Happiness is available. It's such a sense of not being in contention with reality, opening into how things are in this moment. The last thing I want to say is that in some ways I think the the real jewel at the heart of our experience of understanding the first noble truth, experience of, you know, just fully opening into just this moment of reality, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, without unrealistic expectations, without pushing away. The jewel in the heart of it is, of course, wisdom, but it's also compassion, deep compassion. The the Dalai Lama says often that compassion develops through deep insight into what difficult, into what suffering is. And this insight begins and strengthens from being with our own experience of suffering. So you can see, I've seen over and over in my own life how a particular experience of suffering, so go back to that grief, that particular experience of grief or of pain or of illness, and we've all had our own stories, it's a particular to us, my story, my past, my situation, when we stay in that resistance, why me, why this, why now? You know, the effect of that, not understanding, this is the way life is. The effect of that resistance is uh, to feed the sense of alienation, of discontent, of loneliness, of separation, of failure, take your pick, you know. That's the suffering, that suffering of isolation, of being the separate, isolated, lost little self. But when, even in some moments, just this opening into our own particular experience of grief, suffering, of pain, whatever it is, you find that it's like magic, not just in the first moment, but it opens out of being my particular grief to this particular expression of grief which is an aspect of life that's shared by all humans. This is a particular expression. This moment of happiness is a particular expression of happiness that at one point or another is something all humans experience. When we're not afraid to be with our own illness, 
our own aging, our own grief, then we're really able to be fully present with an open mind and heart for the grief, the illness, the pain of someone else. Because we know it. This is life. And instead of, you know, trying to navigate our separate lives and put on a good face and get the most we can out of it, there's this sense of, mm, Payment Children talks about when we're trying to avoid suffering, we like walk around tensed up our whole life as if we were sitting in a dentist's chair. We put that down. We're just open to whatever this experience of life in this moment presents. If it's my grief, if it's your grief, just the grief of the world, the pain of the world. And I could whole other talk on compassion, so much more to say about that, but you can really feel for yourself, can't you? If you've had a particular difficult experience, say, say uh, uh, chronic illness, and many, I've had that, many people come really very sincere, caring, wanting to express their sympathy. But you could, I could really tell the people who cared, who wanted to help me do something, but the feeling under it was, this is so uncomfortable to be with, let's fix you. You know? With all the caring in the world, but that, that not understanding, yeah, this is how it is. This is the first noble truth. Sickness is going to happen. I can be here. No, it's too uncomfortable because we can't be with our own. And then when someone else would come and you go, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? And sometimes there's nothing else to say or nothing else to do, but we're able to be really present, heart-to-heart bearing witness because we know this is how it is in ourselves and others. And openness to dukkha ripens as freedom. So I just want to end with a little reading, a little letter from someone that really inspires me, the sense of really when we understand that life is the beauty and the suffering and the opening to all of us brings us deeply into wisdom and compassion, this luminous nature of heart and mind. So just read this little letter, just a little paragraph, from Mingyur Rinpoche. You know who Mingyur Rinpoche is? He's a Tibetan Lama, the brother of Sony Rinpoche, and he's um, quite a practitioner, and he's a, a you know, big scene in, around the world, big teacher. And uh, th- almost three years ago now, he, he set up his whole um, teaching scene around the world, but he let everyone who runs his organization know he was going to go off for a three-year retreat. And he did that almost three years ago now. He went off. So he was in Bodh Gaya in India, in a little, little um, wherever he was. He was about to start his retreat. And they thought he was just going to go to the monastery and do the retreat. But what he did was in the middle of the night, he just left. He told no one where he was going. He just left and went off to be a wandering retreat where no one knew where he was. And, and online, his brother, Sony Rinpoche, who's a great teacher, said, he just left. He didn't take his toothbrush. He didn't take any money. He didn't take his passport. He didn't tell anyone where he was. He just went off, you know? And it's like, it's easy for for me to say, I can't imagine doing that. But that there's people still doing that in this world. And he went off and no one heard anything from him. And so he's going, our our mother, I'm worried about our mother. She's so worried about him, you know? And uh, after about a year and a half, one of his really, really close uh, Tibetan disciples happened to see him in, um, in Nepal, in Kathmandu. 
And he said, he looked so skinny. He just saw him from a distance. He had a beard and all. He looked so skinny. He didn't recognize him right away. But something about the way he walked was familiar. So Tashi followed him along and then he got, oh my gosh, it's Mingyur Rinpoche. And so he begged Mingyur to let him come along with him. He gave him food. He gave him, you know, warm clothes to wear. And uh, he stayed with him a while. And then Mingyur asked after get last him to leave and gave him this letter to bring back and post for his friends. So I just want to read this little bit from his letter. And now he's, he's off. He's still off doing that now. No one knows where he is. So he says, I myself, this is Mingyur Wenpreche, I myself am wandering without any fixed location, staying in isolated mountain hermitages and other such places. I have experienced feelings of happiness and suffering, rising and falling like waves on the surface of the ocean. At times, food and clothing have been hard to come by, and I have felt cold, hungry, and thirsty. Even when I have begged for alms, I receive nothing but insults and harsh words. At other times, I have received food and clothing effortlessly without even asking for them. And in my mind, it felt as though I were enjoying the pleasures of the gods. While I have experienced both happiness and suffering, the most important thing is that a deep and heartfelt sense of certainty has arisen in the depths of my being, such that no matter what happens, I know that the true nature of these experiences, their very essence, is that of timeless awareness and vast compassion. Suffering ripens as search. Search ripens as freedom. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.